Well, if you have your Bibles open to that New Testament reading, the passage, uh, Titus chapter 1, that would be help this morning. And we're going to be focusing it on the first four verses of this letter that the Apostle Paul sent to Titus, a young minister, on the island of Crete sometime in the first century. Just those four opening verses will form our focus for this morning. And just as we begin, and you've got that open in front of you, can I ask you to have a look at verse 2? Verse 2 is where we'll take our start this morning. Do you see what verse 2 tells us about our God? Our God is a God who makes promises. Do you see that? In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Our God is a God who makes promises. He makes wonderful promises, as it turns out, and he always keeps his promises. That is, God is very different from us in that respect. He's utterly trustworthy. He's completely trustworthy. And so his promises are worth listening to very, very carefully. I wonder, are you the kind of person who likes to make promises or who shies away from that? My wife and I are a little bit different in this respect. Uh, rightly, Kathy thinks that you ought to take a promise seriously when you make it. And so she's very cautious before she commits herself to doing something because she wants to make sure, if possible, that she can follow through on it exactly as she'll say, which is obviously a very good thing. Now, I'm a little bit different. Not, not Don't read that, uh, hear that in the wrong way. Not that I don't take promises seriously, but I tend to like to express my desire that I might be there next Friday for such and such a meeting or that I might be able to help in a certain way. And so I have to be very careful not to promise something that I can't deliver. And unfortunately, there are times when I do so, and I break my promise. I break my promise by not following through. Well, what are some of the promises that you've made recently, I wonder? Have you promised, for example, to get in touch with an old friend or a family member, maybe to give a call on the phone or maybe to Skype or FaceTime? You've made a promise to get in touch. Or maybe you've promised your boss or your manager that next week the project will get done. I promise it will happen this next week. Or maybe it's as simple as you promised your spouse that, okay, this week I'll do the washing up so that you don't have to do it. We make promises all the time, don't we? Children, I wonder if you've also made some promises. Have you promised anything recently? Maybe you've promised, as you came in this morning to your mom or your dad, that you would do your best to sit still and to listen and to sing and participate. Maybe you've promised that this week is going to be the week that you will clean your room. Do you make promises as well? And do you always keep your promises? See, unfortunately, we are a people who don't always keep our promises. But our God is not like us. Verse 2 tells us that God never lies. He never lies. And he always keeps his promises. We're going to consider the implications of that wonderful truth for the message of Titus this morning as we look at verses 1 to 4. And here, here's the thing that I want you to take away. If you forget everything else this morning, please hold on to this. That the promises of God, we're told in these verses, the promises of God are preached 
for the life of the people of God. The promises of God are preached for the life of the people of God. So we're going to take this in those three sections that you can hear in that phrase. First of all, we'll look at the promises of God and what it means to have a promising God. Secondly, we'll have a look more closely at some of those promises. And thirdly, the preaching of the promises. So to get that order right, first, the promising God, the God who promises. Second, the promises of God. And finally, the preaching of those promises. The promises of God are preached for the life, for the godliness of the people of God. Let's begin by looking at how all of this flows from the very character of our God who promises. Verse 2 tells us very clearly, God never lies. He's a never lying God. Later in the chapter, we heard read in verse 10, we're told by Paul, Paul warns Titus, and what's true then is true now as well, that there were many teachers, many people there on that island of Crete who were deceivers, who were not truth tellers, but were ones who twisted the truth. They were deceivers. Verse 11 goes on to show that these deceivers were upsetting the faith, sometimes of whole households, whole families, with their lies about God, twisting the truth about Jesus, who he was, what his work for us means. Verse 12 then goes on, doesn't it, to quote one of the Cretans' owns, a poet that we know by the name of Epimenides, a Cretan poet who said this. You can see it there on the page in verse 8. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. How would you like to have one of your own say that about you? These people are always liars. But of course, he's speaking the truth. And of course, that truth holds true for us as well this morning. We have a problem because of sin. Our hearts like to be deceptive. We even deceive ourselves. We don't always tell the truth to ourselves. And we open our mouths, and though we might mean to say the truth, how often do we say something that is not the full truth? How often do we break our promises and break our commitments to one another? But verse 2 tells us that God is not that way. God makes promises, and he always keeps his promises. God never lies. I want you to pause for a moment and think about what that means for you this morning. You, sitting just here, just now. That there's a God who, because he's God, knows you perfectly. He knows everything about you. Your heart is an open book to him. Your thoughts, he knows front to back. This God knows everything about you. And this God never lies. What is it that this God would say to you about yourself this morning? A God who never lies and who knows the inmost thoughts of your heart. What would he tell you about yourself? Well, we don't have to guess because he has told us about ourselves in his word, hasn't he? He's told us that we are sinners who fall short of his glory. He's told us, and he goes on in chapter 1 to chapter 3 of this letter, this letter to Titus, that we are among those who are deceivers. We're rebellious in our hearts. We're disobedient to God's law. We're hateful. We're envious. That's the truth about us, and that's what God says. The God who never lies tells us the truth about ourselves. That's what we're really like. We are sinners, desperately 
in need of righteousness, of a Savior who can save us from the penalty that we deserve from our sins. Now, if that's a revelation, if you are here as a visitor, perhaps, or one who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, then I have very good news for you, because that's not the only thing God tells us in his word, nor in this passage. The God who never lies also holds out to us a wonderful truth in the form of a promise. And that promise is highlighted right here in our passage. Verse 2, what is it that God has promised? Before the ages, he promised the hope of eternal life. God promised that there's a way to have life despite our sin, despite our rebellion against him. We can have hope of eternal life. And he goes on. Verse 3, who is this God who has promised? If If we turn to him and we dare to trust in him, he is God our Savior. Verse 4, he's God our Father. A God who can be to us a Savior, who can be to us a loving Heavenly Father, who promises the hope of eternal life. This is very good news for those of us, all of us, who are sinful and who know what God would tell us about ourselves. So is it too good to be true? Are these promises simply too good to be believed? That sinners can be forgiven? That we can have the hope of eternal life? That we don't have to face the wrath and the punishment from God that we actually deserve? Is that too good to be true? No. Why do we know that's not too good to be true? Because God has promised it. And who is God? He's a God who never lies. God, who never lies, has promised the hope of eternal life. The promises of God, Titus tells us, are preached for the life, the eternal life of the people of God. We have a God who promises and never lies, and we can trust him utterly to keep his promise. So let's look at what those promises are in more detail, shall we? Verse 2 calls it the hope of eternal life. This is everything for Paul. It's everything for Paul. Do you see how he opens this letter? Paul, verse 1, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's been called by God, the God who promised eternal life. That's his message. That's the message he serves. It's the message that he's an apostle, one sent out to proclaim. And why why does he go out? Why does he do what he does? He does it for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Verse 2 tells us, which accords with godliness. But all of that in verse 2, and we'll come back to look a bit more at that, sorry, the end of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2, is rooted in the hope of eternal life. Paul's entire mission, everything he proclaims for the faith of the elect and the growth in knowledge that accords with godliness, is rooted in eternal life, the hope of eternal life. The promise is everything for Paul. And it's the promise which has been revealed, verse 3, at the proper time, by which Paul means when Jesus came as Savior to walk this earth, to obey God's commands, to love and to teach and to go to the cross and to bear the sin of his people. At that proper time, at that perfect time in these last days, Paul says that's when the promise was fully revealed in all of its power. And that, verse 3, that's the promise Paul was entrusted with. In fact, he was entrusted, as we'll see, not just to hold that promise, not simply even to teach that promise, 
but to preach that promise, to proclaim that promise. And that promise is the core of the faith that he wants Titus to be faithful to. Verse 4, he calls Titus his true child in a common faith. A common faith. A faith that accords with that promise, that gospel that Paul has passed on to Titus. So the promises of God are given for the life of the people of God. But what is this life? What is it that's promised? Well, there are two sections in the letter to Titus which are the real heartbeat, the real pulsing core of this letter and its message and its promise. And I want to take you to both of those. The first is in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. In chapter 2, verse 11, we're told, in similar language to what we just saw in chapter 1, verse 3, at the proper time, God manifested, he revealed this promise in Christ Look at the language of chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. It's been revealed. But this time it's not just a promise. It's grace. It's a gift. And what has it done? It's brought salvation for all people. The promise of eternal life is a promise of grace. A gift that is held out to be received. Even when it's not deserved. In fact, precisely because it's not deserved. It's grace. It's a gift. And it's appeared, Paul tells us. And then in chapter 3, from verse 3 on through verse 7, we're given even more insight into what this good news is. Let me read those verses for you. So starting in chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But... That sweet gospel word, but. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. Do you see it? It's been manifested, chapter 1, verse 3. It's appeared, it's been revealed, chapter 2, verse 11. It's appeared, chapter 3, verse 4. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. How did he do it? Why did he do it? Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he put out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There it is, the hope of eternal life that we can be made heirs of, recipients of, by grace, as a gift, simply by trusting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the promise. And it structures this entire letter, all three chapters, in so many ways revolve around this simple promise. It's the promised hope of eternal life. And it's a promise that we have got to grasp. Why? Because God, who never lies, holds it out to us. And if we are those who do not call ourselves Christians here this morning, it is imperative that we hear what we've just read in verses 3 to 7 of chapter 3. Because if you have not yet trusted in Christ, you are stuck in verse 3 of chapter 3. You are foolish, disobedient, led astray, slave to your own passion and pleasure, passing your days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating others. You cannot get past verse 3 
until and unless you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the gift, the promise that is freely offered in Christ. You cannot get to that but, that glorious but of verse 4, unless you turn with repentance for your sin, a sorrow for your sin. We heard last week from Adam Young, if you were here to hear the sermon, of the wonderful joy, the joy that it is to turn away from our sin and to turn towards the Lord Jesus Christ and receive that gift of eternal life that we don't, re- don't deserve. But until we do that, we are stuck in verse 3. But if you are here this morning and you call yourself a Christian, you profess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've placed your faith and trust in him, let me say this to you just as clearly. You cannot, you must not, you may not move beyond this promise. You may not think, well, I've already been saved from my sin. I know these things. These are the basics. Salvation by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone. I know these things. And some of you do. Some of you know them well. But I tell you this morning, you can never move past them. You must never go beyond them. You must return to them again and again, because in these promises are the only hope you have for eternal life and for growing in godliness. Our growth in the Christian life is fueled by, is empowered by, our grasp of these promises. Paul tells Titus, Do you want the church to grow in grace and godliness? Then preach the promise of the gospel. Remind them again and again of the hope they have in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what will lead to growth in godliness. The promises of a never-lying God are preached for the life of the people of God. So we've seen a little bit of God's character although I wish we had time to dwell more on the reality of our promising, never-lying God. Please do that this week. Please prayerfully consider what it means to have a God who is that way. And we've seen as well a little bit of the the wonderful promise held out to us in the Gospel, captured especially in 2.11-14 and 3.3-7. And again, this week, can I encourage you, day after day, to go back to those verses to read them, to meditate on them, to ask the Lord, to cry out to the Lord, to impress them upon your heart and into your mind, to help you, to be humble, to to humble you even, that if you think you already know this, you think you have already understood the gospel, to help humble you, to show you that there's more to understand, there's more to grasp. So we've seen the God who promises and never lies. We've seen the promises of God. But what does verse 3 tell us? It tells us that God who makes promises has given those promises to preachers to preach them. It's the proclamation. Do you see it? Verse 3. His word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted. How has God revealed his promises? How does God continue to reveal his promises in a way that will help us to put sin to death and to grow in godliness? It is chiefly through this. This flawed, sometimes very weak, always imperfect act of preaching that goes on every Sunday morning and every Sunday evening right here. Through preaching, God has promised to do great things, to deliver his promises through the word preached. 
So we've got to finish this morning by really thinking hard about what preaching is, or should be, and what it should look like for us to attend to, to listen to the preaching of God's word, so that we can grasp and cling to those promises more and more as we grow in the Christian life. So let's consider together what the preaching of the word really is. Uh, Preaching, we're sometimes told, is meant to be engaging. Is that right? It's a good thing if preaching is engaging. But sometimes that's taken to mean that the preacher is a bit like an actor on the stage who has to be very conscious of the reception that he's receiving from his audience, who will then critique him with applause or in other ways, right? That is not the biblical approach to preaching. Preaching is not entertainment. Preaching is not something where you get to sit and stand in judgment over the one who's preaching. I'm going to apply this mostly to Andy, not myself today, right? So when Andy's standing here, or here perhaps, you're not listening to him, watching him, in order to approve or disapprove his manner of speaking to you. That's not what preaching is. Preaching, according to the Bible, is proclamation. In fact, the same word that's used for preaching is used to describe one who is a herald, one who in the ancient world was given a message by the king or by the magistrate, took that message perhaps into the local theater space, an amphitheater, and you can imagine then row upon row of citizens seated there and a hush descends, not because of the herald, The herald sometimes was a slave, might not even be a free person, but because of the herald's function, the herald came with the message from the king, from the ruler, and everyone needed to hear that. That's why the hush descended and everyone's ears were opened, because the herald had a message that he had been entrusted with. And do you know how the herald was judged? Not on the basis of his performance, although, yes, he needed a voice that could be heard, but he was judged on the basis of his faithfulness to the message he was given. Preaching, brothers and sisters, is heralding. It's heralding forth the word of God. It's heralding forth what has actually happened and been revealed to us in the scriptures. That Jesus Christ really came, really lived as a man, really died on a cross, really rose from the dead, and all for our sins and our justification. That's the heralding that's supposed to take place in the gospel. That's what happened. The king, God himself, has delivered this message, and the preacher is to proclaim it. The herald is given, in fact, the entire word of God to proclaim to the people of God. God's promises come to God's people through the mode of preaching, the preached word. And so in preaching, what are we meant to hear? We're meant to hear the very words of God themselves. How do we judge the sermon? Not on whether we liked the voice of the preacher or his motions or lack of motion. We judge the preaching of the word of God by the word of God. We go home and we open up this text again and we say, do you know what? Did what I hear this morning from the pulpit agree with what I see in the word? Let me think about this even further. The faithful preaching of the word of God is what we are to expect as we come to worship God. 
How can we prepare ourselves to hear this preaching? How can we prepare ourselves to hear the promises of God so that we can take them into our hearts and into our minds? Well, I think there are many practical ways, and I want to leave you with just a few this morning. In some ways, we're giving, uh, we're giving great help, actually, in our uh, standards. Many of you know we are a Presbyterian church, LCPC. That's what the P stands for in our name. And as a Presbyterian church, we believe in the scriptures as the revealed word of God. But we also have the Westminster Confession of Faith and catechisms that we think are wonderful summaries exactly of the truth that's revealed in the word of God. And I want to read to you just, a, just briefly this morning what our standards say about the preaching and the hearing of the word of God. The first thing that we find in chapter 21 of our confession of faith is this, that when we come to worship, among other things, among prayer, among singing God's praise, we are to always find the sound preaching and conscionable hearing of God's word. Now, that's not a word that we use anymore. You might put out for Scrabble or some word game if you have a good vocabulary. But if you're like me, you have not heard that word and you probably didn't understand what it meant, what it, what it means. Conscionable in modern English simply means very carefully attentive. Very carefully attentive. Ready to receive the conscionable hearing of God's word to our confession. How do we do that? Well, the Shorter Catechism gives us a beginning approach to doing this. Question 90 in our Shorter Catechism says this. How is the word, that is the word of God, to be read and heard that it may become effectual to salvation? How do we listen in a way that God's word will have great effect in our hearts and in our lives? Well, the answer to that question in the Catechism is this. That the word may become effectual to salvation... We must attend to it with, are you ready? With diligence, preparation, and prayer. Diligence, preparation, and prayer. So one of my challenges to you this coming week, maybe even ahead of this evening, as you return to hear the word preached this evening in our evening service, is how can you, under God, by his Spirit, Approach the preaching of his word with diligence, preparation, and prayer. What does that look like? Well, let me give you some ideas. At the very least, you can think about how you're spending your Saturday evening, can't you? Is it, is it very easy to pay attention, especially if you're sitting down, when you are extremely tired? No, it's not. And I also know that we've had times when it's a struggle. It's a real struggle to stay awake for the entirety of a sermon. Sometimes that might be the responsibility up front. Sometimes, probably more often, it's our responsibility because we've not gotten the sleep that we needed to get. That's a very easy way, isn't it, to prepare ourselves for hearing God's word with great, careful, reflective attention. In the, Un- in the United States Supreme Court, uh, there is uh, a- an elderly justice by the name of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who in 2015 was sat at the State of the Union Address. Maybe you've seen clips of this before. This was when uh, then-President Obama was standing before the entire Congress and all the justices and all the special people there, and he was delivering the State of the Union. How, how, is, how is this country doing? And sat around him are all of these dignitaries. Well, the cameras, of course, are panning, aren't they, looking. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg was caught out because 
Her head was, her chin was on her chest. The poor woman was tired, and allegedly, she said later, she might have had a drink or two before going along that evening, and she fell asleep. She fell asleep as the President of the United States was giving what is one of the most important addresses of the entire calendar year. She's asleep. And in fact, nine months later, Pope Francis came to give an address to the U.S. Congress, and again, the same woman, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, was caught on camera nodding off during the Pope. Now, poor woman, we can, we can, we can probably sympathize with her, but here's the point. The President and the Pope are fairly important people in our world, but they pale in comparison, don't they, to the King of the Universe, the Lord God Himself, the Almighty. And if we would listen with attention, to what a president says, to what a prime minister says, if we would do our best, if we were sat here and Theresa May walked in and was going to give us an address on some issue, wouldn't we do our best to listen attentively and respectfully? How much more, then, should we do the same when we listen to the preaching of the word of God? Because it's God's word himself given to us that we're listening to. What else might it look like for us to prepare ourselves to hear those promises preached? Well, as we come on a Sunday morning, as best we can, and I say this knowing that I'm convicted in my own heart and life and family, we make our Sunday mornings as peaceable as we possibly can. And believe me, the enemy does not want us to come to worship in a peaceful frame of mind. And we'll do everything he can to sow discord among us or to help us wake up late. But we need to arrange it as far as we are able so that Sunday morning prepares our frame of mind so that we come with expectancy to hear God speak through his word, that we come with readiness and attention to listen. What does it mean as you are sitting there in the pew, in the chair? How can you listen attentively? One way that the older preachers used to talk about this was that every single thing you hear in the sermon, whether it's a command to amend your life in some way, whether it is God's law which convicts us, whether it's the promises about the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever it is that you hear, you tell yourself in your mind as you sit there, this is God's word for me. You don't allow yourself to think of the other person across the way to whom this might apply. You don't allow your mind to drift to generalities about the church or the world. You say, Lord, how does this apply to me? And you pray that prayer silently as you sit there hearing the preaching of God's word, asking him to help apply by his spirit that word, those promises to your heart. What do you do after the service, after you've listened? Hopefully it's not just a sigh of relief once the sermon's over and you go home. How can you continue to be a conscionable hearer of God's word? Well, it's very easy on a day like today. We're not just simply going to gather for fellowship over coffee today. We're going to gather over a lunch. And what if, in addition to getting to know one another and meeting new people over lunch, we actually talked about God's word? We talked about those promises of God. We talked about the ways in which we sensed God applying his word preached to our lives. And we had a spiritual conversation that was edifying one another and amplifying the word that was preached. What if we did the same when we went home? What if at home on a Sunday lunch, another Sunday, we had not what some talk of as most preacher for lunch, 
But instead, we went back to the feast of God's word that had been held out to us. And we made it a point, especially fathers of families, we made it a point to lead the conversation back to what we'd heard preached and how that might apply to our hearts. How are we to grow to be conscionable hearers of God's word? If the God who never lies has promised wonderful things for us and he has decided that those things are revealed through preaching, we have got to become good listeners to preaching, just as much as our ministers need to study to show themselves approved to be good preachers. The promises of God are preached for the life of the people of God. And God wants this to be joined up the life, the knowledge, to godliness. He doesn't want us simply to go out of here with new conceptual knowledge, but rather to have our lives transformed by the promises we've heard and by the commands that show us where we need to amend our lives. God's promises are preached for the life of the people of God. Let's pray as we close.